Thanks, Steve. Are those video announcements great? That is incredible. Absolutely incredible. I got one more announcement. Uh, Mark Gwynn asked me to mention to you again. You got a flyer. Did you get this flyer in, the, in your box about the first annual Bible conference, January 13, 14, 15? Did you get this? Got it? Uh, he wanted me to, again, remind you of that. And in addition to that, something else that he wants to do, uh, he asked me to mention this morning, uh, they would like to put up some posters uh, about the college and different places in high schools and different uh, businesses around the country. And to do that, Mark would like to come up with a new motto uh, for the college. And so what he's asking you to do as a student body, that if you would like to submit to him, box number 55, a suggestion for a motto, if we decide, if he decides to use yours, then he'll give you a $100 gift certificate to the bookstore. So that's not too bad. Uh, you could at least buy one sweatshirt. So anyway, you could... Um... <laughs> All right. Um, you, see, you, you may ask, what is a motto? Uh, what, what, what is a motto? Well, I got a definition here for you. It says, a motto is a pithy point to ponder as one pursues the possibility of participating in the preponderance of programs propagated at our college. And so if, if, uh, if you would uh, like to do that... Now, a motto should be short, clear, and preferably honest uh, if you're going to do it about our college. Uh, for example, it wouldn't be right for you to say the Master's College, uh, the most technologically advanced school in America, um, the Master's College, a campus where everything works, uh, the Master's College, the best-smelling campus in the country. Um, <laughs> it, would, it would be really good if you'd do something that we could use that would be uh, sort, some sort of at least a, a reflection of our integrity. All right, open your Bibles, if you would, this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Well, this has been a great morning already to come together and to have, a, have fun together, to laugh together, to worship and song together. The message that I'm going to share with you this morning is of a very serious nature, one that is a, a theme that is very relevant and very current as we look together in God's Word to study what happens when a great servant of God falls in sin and what should it be our response to that be. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Let's pray together. Father, again, we just pause for a few moments to tell you that we love you and that we acknowledge you again as Lord in our lives personally. And Lord, it is our desire that your Lordship will be manifested not only in us as individuals, but also it will be something that will be the reputation of this campus. God, it is our hope and our prayers and our commitment that you will be powerfully felt among the student body, and also as we touch the lives beyond us. Lord, to do that, we must constantly be called back to obedience to the Word of God. Lord, to a greater understanding of what it means to be like you. And that is our desire this morning, to know you in a way that maybe we haven't in the past. That we may continue to walk with you and to love you and to touch others with the relationship that we have with you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As you're holding your uh, Bible in 2 Samuel chapter 11, let me begin by mentioning to you a passage in Acts, and don't turn there, Acts chapter 13. In that passage, Paul is in Antioch, and he is speaking to the Jews in the synagogue on the Sabbath, which was his custom. And after addressing them and exhorting them in verse 22 of that passage in chapter 13, 
Paul says this. After removing Saul, God made David their king, the king of Israel, of course. God testified concerning David, and this is a quote from the Old Testament. I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. If you were to take the time sometime in the future to review the life of David, you would find that the scriptures reveal to us that he is a very, very remarkable man. He was a remarkable individual. He was strong and athletic. The Old Testament tells us that he leaped over a wall that no other man could leap over. He outran a troop of soldiers that were pursuing him. He fought a lion and a bear with his bare hands and defeated them. He was not only a strong and athletic individual, he was a master at using the slingshot, which we all know about. He was also described as being someone who was ruddy or someone who was handsome, good-looking, attractive. He was also a poet and also a musician, someone that certainly would be a candidate for the Rhodes Scholarship, someone who stood above his peers. But he wasn't just a remarkable human being, he was also a remarkable child of God and a, a remarkable leader. As a leader, when David took over the monarchy from Saul, the kingdom was divided. The Philistines were in charge, and the Ark of the Covenant had not been in Israel for some 70 years. David then came in, took over the leadership of the monarchy, and united the people, built the kingdom into an empire which was never before known in the history of Israel. He was a remarkable, successful leader. He recovered the Ark of the Covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 6 and returned it to Jerusalem. In addition to all this, David defeated all of the enemies of Israel that were around them. And as a believer, the scriptures tell us, tell us a lot about David, that he is indeed a very unusual spiritual man, child of God. In the passage that describes to us the, the battle between David and Goliath, 1 Samuel 17, it says, when facing Goliath, David says this, the battle was won not by sword, but by the word of God. David was a person, when confronted with adversity, was very much aware that he was sustained by God's Word, not by his own strength, not by the natural abilities and skills that he possessed, even though they were great, that his reliance was upon God's Word. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, as we progress in the description of David in the Old Testament, when pursued by a man, Saul, who was filled with jealousy, bitterness, hatred, and murder, David continually displayed kindness, meekness, and patience. Truly an unusual individual. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, David had a close friend named Jonathan who helped David to be shaped and fashioned into the great individual that he was. David said of Jonathan, Thy love to me was wonderful. David was an unusual Christian in that he was willing to allow himself to be close to another person who could hold him accountable, who could look into his life and to talk to him about things that ought not be there. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, the first nine verses, we see... David's great sensitivity to sin. And he says this in that passage to Jonathan. Jonathan, what sin have I committed? Listen to his words. What sin have I committed that Saul should want to kill me? When Saul was pursuing him and, and endeavoring to kill him, David's concern was maybe there is something in my life that should not be there. And that sin is in my life. And I have not dealt with it and acknowledged it. He had a great sensitivity to that. In 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 23, David said to his followers, Stay with me. Don't be afraid. This man, Saul, who is speaking of, is seeking your life, is also seeking mine as well. You will be safe with me. 
David was a person that as a spiritual leader was very concerned about his followers. He loved and faithfully protected them when they faced hardship as well. In summary, we could say that David knew God as Lord, Redeemer, Rock, and Shepherd. Indeed, the desire of David's life was, as he, as he said himself, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. David was a remarkable individual. Someone that as we read his life, none of us could put ourselves up beside him and say, you know, I find in David something of myself. Because David was so far beyond and above and, and advanced uh, to great degrees beyond what we've all experienced. And yet as we were to come to 2 Samuel chapter 10, and we were to say, well, that is the end of David's life as a victorious leader, a victorious king, as a competent individual, as a loving brother in God, as a person who is very sensitive to his sin, as a person who is very gifted in his natural abilities, you and I would like to just bring it all to a close right there and say, in story. In fact, if a Hollywood screenwriter got hold of David's life, I'm sure that it would be at chapter 10 that they would sort of fade to black and bring up the music and put the end on the screen. Because that's the kind of stuff Hollywood pictures are made of. This is what we all like to hear. David, this marvelous, mighty individual in story, 2 Samuel chapter 10. And if you and I were given the task of writing the biography on King David, even knowing what we already know about him that I've not mentioned this morning, I'm sure that we would feel the tendency to bring his biography to a close at the end of chapter 10. At the pinnacle of his reign, at the height of his walk with God. But God doesn't do that. It is God and not screenwriters, and it is God and not us who is recording the life of King David. And God is committed in His Word to fully disclose all of the aspects of what it means to be His child. All of the realities of what it means to walk and live in this earth. And as we move from chapter 10 to chapter 11, we find in David's life an experience that you and I can now identify with. And God reveals to us, beginning in chapter 11, David's fall and sin, his entanglement in lust, the destruction of his kingdom, the destruction of his relationships, the collapse of his family, and the non-repentant, bitter, hateful spirit that David turns into. And that's a hard thing, isn't it? In fact, you'd have to, as I was reading the story, my mind immediately turns to God, why would you do this? Why, why, why not stop at chapter 10? Why not kill David? In fact, as I was on the phone last night with Mark Hardy, talking to him from Idaho, I, I was talking to Mark about this, and Mark's up there pastoring and, and ministering in the church, and then I said, Mark, what do you think about yourself in regard to sexual sin? I mean, you're a pastor, you've been with us, you know a lot about the dynamics of sin and, and lust and, and sexual relations and marriage. And Mark said, you know, Dave, what I would hope would God would kill me before I, my life went from chapter 10 to chapter 11 of 2 Samuel. You know, and I thought about that. I thought, well, I wonder why God didn't do that. Why didn't God just bring it to a close right there? Because as we read, there was great things at stake when David fell. Not only because of his own life in the kingdom of Israel, but God's very name was brought down low because of David's sin. God, why didn't you just stop it right there? Well, the Scriptures tell us that. Give us a little bit of a glimpse of why God chose not to do that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, a passage, and don't turn there, a passage that John MacArthur spoke 
from last night. Paul tells us this, this in that passage in verse 11. These things, or in other words, the things that are recorded in the Old Testament, are examples written down as warnings to us. David's life is recorded for you and for me as a warning, which is the word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 10.11. The word warning is the word nuthasia. And translated, that word, the word nuthasia means a word of learning through encouragement. What Paul is saying to us is that the things that God chose to preserve for us in the Old Testament are to be a word of learning to us. And then you say, well, why? What is it that we need to learn? And why is it that Paul feels like we need to learn? Well, in this passage, again in 1 Corinthians 10, he goes on to say there are two people that need to be warned, that need to be given a word of learning about their lives that comes from the Old Testament. And in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says this, we need a word of learning about our lives if we are unduly confident. And he says that, so that if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. One of the reasons that we need to move into the Old Testament Second 2 Samuel and look at the life of David, this great fall from the pinnacle of success, is so that you and I will not be unduly confident. And unfortunately, God knows that we are, and He also knew that we would be when He recorded 1 Corinthians chapter 10. That is a struggle that we share. But at times we think that we're impervious, untouchable, when it comes to sin and fall. But then Paul goes on to say, but there's another group that needs to be given a word of learning. And in verse 13 in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says this to the weak. He says, No temptation has seized you except which is common to man, and God is faithful who will not let you be tempted above what you are able to bear. But when you are tempted, God will provide a way so that you can stand up under it. So Paul is saying to us, you know why God decided to record and to preserve the fall of David in the Old Testament? For two of us, two groups of us. Those of us that are overconfident and those of us that are weak. And I think within those two groups, probably we fall in one of those categories, right? All of us in this room probably do. In fact, if you're normal, I think that you probably fall in one category on Monday and probably another category on Tuesday and then the other category on Wednesday. We sort of kind of ride a roller coaster in our lives. And it is because of that, God preserved for us the life of David. As I was thinking about this message this morning, I was watching the last inning of the World Series when I turned on the television. I was talking to Mark on the phone and I was watching the men walk up the bat. And uh, you know what happens. They, the guys walk up the bat in the World Series and they read off all their statistics. And, and I forget the... the I don't, well, I didn't have the sound on, so I didn't see hear the player's name, but they're, they're just listing all this person's accomplishments on the screen. And obviously, and I don't know that much about the Braves or, or the Blue Jays, but, but obviously whoever this was that was batting for the Toronto Blue Jays was one of their best hitters. And his batting average was in the low 300s, which is in professional league terminology outstanding. And as this person walked to the plate, the, he was struck out on three pitches. And I thought to myself, you know, if I was the person behind that person, I wouldn't want to walk to the plate to end the game. I wouldn't want to be the next one up. Because if we put our best hitter up there and our best hitter struck out on three pitches, then what am I going to do? I mean, what hope do I have? I mean, I only hit 180 or I only hit 220. I never could hit the way this person... I don't have this person's eye. I don't have their eye-hand contact. I don't have anything like this individual has. And they struck out. So why even bother? And I thought, you know, that's a great analogy to what we're talking about this morning. 
because I remember when I was a freshman in college, my first year of a Christian college, and was discipled by a close friend of mine. It was from my home church, a young man that I thought was the best thing that the college had to offer that I went to. He was on fire for the Lord. He had memorized all these scriptures. He was a, a great individual. He was an all-state wrestler in high school. He was sort of, in many ways, like David. And I remember as we went from our freshman year, I went from my freshman year to my sophomore year, this individual fell in sexual immorality. And also, like David, this individual not only fell in sexual immorality, but ended up having the baby by a woman that was the wife of his best friend. And as a person who had been saved less than two years, I looked at that and I thought, I, I might as well drop out now. Why continue to pay my tuition? Why continue to put myself through all this, this hardship? If Bill can't stand up under the pressure, then can I? And it is in that context that Paul and the writers of the Old Testament come to us and say, look, it is not inevitable. We're not going to offer you a formula that gives you a guarantee but there are things that you and I can meditate upon and look at so that we can have the hope that if we're overconfident, God can deal with us. We can have the encouragement that if we're weak, God can strengthen us. And that's what this story does. As we look at David's life, David's life gives us then a word of learning about four things that I want us to look at very quickly. A word of learning about four things, four truths that I think all of us need to reflect upon if we're to be rid of our overconfidence, if we're to be upheld in our weakness when it comes to this sin. And those four truths are these. David's life gives us a word of learning about sin, a word of learning about spirituality, a word of learning about leadership, and a word of learning about God. That's what Paul says 1 Corinthians is all about, or the Old Testament is all about when he records it in 1 Corinthians 10. Now what does David's life teach us then about sin? In what way is his life a word of learning about sin? Let me give to you a few things about that that we see from David's life. First of all, David became vulnerable to temptation when he failed to deal with sin in his marriage. David became vulnerable to temptation when he failed to deal with sin in his marriage. Turn to 2 Samuel. Turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 6. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, we find that David is finally successful in bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. As I said earlier, the Ark had been out of Israel for some 70 years in the possession of the Philistines. David went after the Ark, and in the process of bringing the Ark back to Jerusalem, one of David's followers died because he inappropriately touched the Ark as it was falling off the cart. In addition to that, David, because of that event, became very, very fearful, to the point that he decided, I'm not even going to continue this endeavor. As much as he desired to have the presence of God exemplified in the presence of the ark in Jerusalem, David gave up his, his efforts. And he let the ark reside in the house of some little humble, unknown person named Obed-Edom. And for three months, the ark stayed there. And, and because of the ark's presence in this man's family, he, he prospered mightily. And after David seeing that, he went to the Lord in prayer and finally figured out, well, the reason that I was unsuccessful in my first attempt was because I tried to move the ark in a way that God instructed us not to move it. So in obedience to God's command, he goes back, grabs the ark, and takes it into Jerusalem. And as he is entering into Jerusalem with the ark, 
we see that there is a great celebration. That David is overwhelmed with joy. He's ecstatic over the success of his efforts. That finally, the Ark of the Covenant, after 70 years, after two generations, is returned to its rightful home, Jerusalem. And as that is all happening, we find that David's wife, Michael, is watching him from a distance. And in verse 16, it says, As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Then drop down to verse 19, or to uh, verse 20, rather. When David returned home to bless his household after the celebration of the return of the ark, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, in a very sarcastic, biting tone. Disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David then said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father and anyone in his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. She was obviously jealous that David, David was able to accomplish something that her father had endeavored to accomplish many times. Verse 22, I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes, but by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And then verse 23, And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children till the day of her death. The language of the Old Testament suggests to us that the reason that she didn't have children was not because she was infertile. It was not because physically, physiologically, she was unable to do so. The language would suggest to us that the reason that she had no children is because it was at this point David withdrew from his wife, Michael. And the incredible thing is that if we read the chronology properly in Second and First Samuel, we find that this event happened somewhere around ten years prior to David's sin with Bathsheba. For ten years, imagine that, David and his wife Michael had had a marriage of convenience. A marriage which was like one of my family members that they never shared the bed together. They never shared the bedroom together. It was something that was purely legal, functional, practical, but in no way fully relational in the sense that God created that marriage to be. And it was at this point that I would suggest to you that the temptation to sexual immorality entered into the life of David. And for ten years... This was a part of his marriage. So the first truth that we learn about sin from David's life is that temptation enters when we're unwilling to respond and to move into a relationship that God has established for us in a way that exemplifies the Spirit of Christ. And David was unwilling to do that. And because he was unwilling to do that, ten years later, while harboring that bitterness and anger, in the severing of that marriage relationship, David is vulnerable to sexual immorality. The second thing we see in David's life in regard to sin is before the indulgence in sin with Bathsheba, David fed his sexual appetite with many small bites over many years. It wasn't just a matter that over many years David failed to do what he knew was right when it came to his marriage and to sexual matters. He also did things that he knew was wrong. And he did them in small ways over many years. Possibly David was like you and like me, and that many times our flesh and our sin deceives us into thinking that there are certain sins that are safe. There are certain sins that I can manage. 
I can stay in control of. And those sins particularly seem to be the sins that we can hide, don't they? Ones that I can keep from you. And if I can keep them from you, then I somehow in my perverted thinking go on to conclude that if you don't know it, I still control it. And we think that way. You're not aware of my sin, therefore I'm still in charge of my sin. It's only when it gets out that it masters me. And I think that's what David was dealing with. Over many years, as many as 20 years, David fed bite by bite, piece by piece, his sexual indulgent appetite. You say, well, how did he do that? Well, way back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, don't turn there, verses 16 and 17, God gave to Moses clear, precise instructions about how a king, the king of Israel, ought to conduct himself. In verse 16 of Deuteronomy chapter 17, the passage tells us that the king is not to acquire great numbers of horses. I guess in the modern vernacular it would be great numbers of cars. In verse 17, verse, verse 17b, the same passage tells us that he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. And then sandwiched right between those two things in verse 17a, God tells Moses this about the king of Israel. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. David slew the horses when he conquered the people. David dedicated the gold and silver to the temple when he returned from his escapades. But, and there's always a but, in David's life, he acted in direct disobedience to God's word and multiplied wives. Bathsheba, in fact, was his eighth wife. And over a period of 20 years, David continued to accumulate wives as he continued to feed his sexual appetite, his indulgence in lust. This was not something that happened overnight. When we find David wandering on the rooftop in 2 Samuel chapter 11, it's not something that just popped up. It's not a microwave experience of his sin that he woke up one morning and, and all of a sudden, I think that I'm going to engage myself in sexual immorality. This was something that was growing in him over a period of great time. And its growth took place because David, for many years, knew what was right to do in his marriage and chose not to do it. He was aware of what was right. There were moments when he knew in reflection and in the presence of God that he was wrong. And in fact, in the Psalms we read, the commentators tell us the different Psalms that were written during different periods of David's life. We read where David was constantly confronted by his sin and his failings before God. There were points and little flashes of honesty and reality where David knew that I got a choice to make. Either I'll do what is easy and continue to indulge myself and enjoy the pleasures of my sin, and after all, no one knows them, and why shouldn't I? Or I can do what is hard and difficult and humiliating, and I will allow myself to be broken before God. I will start doing what I know is right to do, and I will stop doing what I know that is wrong. But David didn't do that. And he kept his sin under wrap. This morning, right before I came into chapel, John said he wanted to meet with me about my chapel message, John MacArthur. And so I went to John, and, and John said, Dave, I want, to, I want to tell you something. He said, if you give the students any message, message about the fall and sexual sin, give them, give them this message. I said, I emphasized it last night, and I would really like for you to emphasize it this morning. And unfortunately, it was something that was already in my message, so I really breathed a sigh of relief. Um, he said, Dave, tell the students that the fall in sexual immorality doesn't happen in an instant. 
It is something that is nurtured and fed and fed and fed. And he starts relating to me a story of an incident that he's aware of and starts telling me how this individual over many years not only fed his sexual appetite through these decisions, but also neglected his own wife. And as I listened to John, I said, what an incredible parallel to King David. This person knew what was right. Not only did he know it, he was like David, he taught it. He preached it. He wrote about it and chose not to pursue it. So in summary, we could say, one, sin enters via broken relationships. Two, sin is fed over a long period of time. And three, the last thing about sin is that sin cannot be compartmentalized. And we talk about this in student life a lot. Because it's something that is so easy to think that we can do. That somehow that sin can touch me, a poison can enter into my hand and never go beyond my wrist. And in the physical realm, we know that that is not true. If poison enters here, it's going to go through my entire body. And in the spiritual realm, the same thing is true. When we engage ourselves in sin in one area, the truth about that is that sin starts permeating all areas of our life. And we can also say the reverse is true as well. When we see someone sinning in one area, we know that sin has already contaminated all areas as well. What a fallacy and what a short-sighted understanding it is of sin to, to know that someone falls in sexual immorality and to say, well, you know, it was just something that happened on Tuesday. And he just did it once, and that was it. It was a sin that took place on Tuesday. As if there was no prior history to the sin, as if there was nothing that went up beyond this one act, as though sin can, in fact, be compartmentalized. And this person just did this on Tuesday. That's not what the Scriptures tell us. And we see that in the life of David, don't we? David did indeed commit adultery. But he also committed the sin of robbery. According to the law of the Old Testament, when you take another man's wife, it is considered theft. He also was a liar, committed deception. And deception and adultery always accommodate one another and attend one another. He was also guilty of drunkenness as he gave wine to Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, and got him drunk so that he would not understand what was taking place in his own family. David was guilty of injustice in the way that he treated Uriah. He was guilty in stumbling, causing other Christians to sin as well, as he gave instructions to Joab, the general over his armies, to conduct himself in a way that would, that would expose Uriah to death, which he did in obedience to David, and Uriah, in fact, died. And then lastly, David is guilty of murder. In the epistle of James, you all know in this passage, it says, He that offendeth in one point is guilty of all. Sin can't be compartmentalized. If there is a struggle with sin in your life in the area of sexual immorality, it is going to be also a struggle in, your li in other areas of your life. It can't be compartmentalized. You can't take our lives and sort of look, like it, look at it like it's a... a um, a pizza that has no cheese or no topping. And we sort of slice it up. And when we slice it, you can kind of divide the pieces and nothing runs together. It's not like that at all. In fact, the better analogy would be, say, it's like a pizza that has triple cheese. And it's hot. And when you slice it up, you can try to divide it all you want, but the cheese just kind of runs together, doesn't it? And that's what sin's like. You can't isolate it. It starts contaminating all that you are and all that you do. 
That's why when you sit down and you see someone in your room and, and in your family, in your own realm of friendships, and you say, well, you know, this person, man, there just seems to be a lot of anger and bitterness in this person's life. And I think that the only problem that they have is that they've got a bad car or they've got a bad class. And that that's the only problem. We just solve this one problem and it's all over. The Scriptures will teach us that that sin has already poisoned the whole person to control them and to master them. Sin enters the relationship when we fail to do what God designed us to be in our relationship. Sin grows in small steps over a long time and sin spreads to every person's, every area of person's life. The second thing that the story of David teaches us is it's a word of learning about spirituality. Let me go through this quickly. Number one, spirituality is not a static state. In Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2, we read the words of David, which are quite amazing and profound, where he says, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. And the commentators tell us that this psalm was written just months before David's fall with Bathsheba. The second thing that David's life teaches us about spirituality is there is never a day in any person's life but that he or she is dependent upon the grace of God. No matter what position or what accomplishments that a person has attained, it does not and will not exempt them from the need to daily commune with God. And we fail to understand that, don't we? It's sort of like we look at spiritual growth as though it's something that we can attain to and leave all this other stuff that we struggle with up to that point behind us. And how many times I've sat in my office and listened to the students say, you know, I at one time struggled with homosexuality, but it's not a struggle at all in my life anymore. And I think, you know, Satan would have you to believe that. Satan would have you to believe that you're beyond vulnerability. Satan would have you to believe that there are some sins that will never touch your life again. But the truth is that sin doesn't work that way. That we can't accomplish, attain to a level of spiritual maturity and say, you know, everything's behind me now. The third thing that we learn is that the outward external spirituality brings, listen to this, contentment to the mind and silence to the conscience so that the flesh may continue in its secret sin. In other words, one of the worst things that you could have done if you were struggling with sin was to come to the Master's College. You know why? Because at a place like the Master's College, we give you all these ways to continue to appear spiritual outwardly. And we don't mean to do it that way. We don't intend for you to, to be falsely spiritual this morning when you stood up to sing. But just the very nature of being in a Christian community allows that to happen. In fact, if you were at home and not around Christians, you wouldn't have near the opportunity you have here because now you can stand among people and say, you know, I'm like they are. You can deceive them and you can deceive yourself. Because outward spirituality not only gives you a false understanding of what it means to be spiritually mature, it also gives you the opportunity to allow secret sins to continue to get to fester and to grow while hiding them with your outward facade. Saul said to Samuel at one point in 1 Samuel chapter 15 when he was confronted with his, his, his wickedness, Saul says this, I performed the commandments of the Lord. I mean, he was, he was saying to Samuel, Samuel, I've done outwardly all that I should. And Samuel said, but it's your heart that is wicked. Israel said to God at one point in Isaiah chapter 58, Wherefore have we not fasted, and thou seest it not? It's like, God, aren't we doing the things that we're supposed to do, and you're still condemning us for our wickedness? Outward spirituality allows secret sin to grow. And fourthly, we must have a friend 
the spiritual things that we learn about David's life is that we must have a friend close enough to not only hear us talk about our lives, but to watch us live our lives as well. David had that at one point in his early career with Jonathan, but unfortunately as he went along in his life and as after Jonathan died, Jonathan was not replaced. And as I was reading a book last night from a man who's written many books on leadership and marriage and spirituality, I came across this quote. Every leader needs a close friendship, someone who knows what he is like and still loves him and still protects him. Within months after writing this, this particular author was disqualified from ministry because of sexual immorality. And one of the reasons that he gave was that he no longer maintained that kind of close relationship in his life. And, you you know, we talk a lot about accountability, don't we? And unfortunately, when you and I talk about accountability, we all affirm it. We all say it's good, but when we talk about it, generally what we mean is is a one-hour meeting on Thursday morning. And you know what happens in that one-hour meeting? The person sees what you want them to see. And when Jonathan and David maintained their close friendship, Jonathan didn't just hear what David had to say. Jonathan watched how David lived and was able to address those things in David's life. The third reality that we learn from David's life is concerning leadership. And let me read these to you. Leader, a leader is in trouble when the primary objective for studying the Word is to use it to minister to others rather than to allow it to minister to himself. Do you hear that? So that's very critical for all of you as students who are studying God's Word. A leader is in trouble when the primary objective for studying the Word of God is to use it to minister to others rather than to study the Word of God in order to allow it to minister to me. And that is so common among leaders that they sit down hour after hour and you think, well, how could this person fall? I mean, good night, they're entrenched in studying the Word of God hours upon hours every week. How could that happen? Well, the way that that happens is that they study it not for it to transform them. They study it in order to use it on other people. And rather than being motivated by love and giving themselves and humbling themselves before the Word of God, they are motivated by pride and they study the Word of God in order to continue to feed their kingdom, their machinery, their reputation. The second thing we learn about spiritual leadership is that good godly fruit doesn't necessarily come from a good godly person. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, we are to pursue holiness so God can use us. The, the Scriptures tell us that. But now listen to this. The reverse, however, is not true. We cannot say that because God used me, therefore I am holy. You understand that? 2 Timothy chapter 2 says, Be holy so God can use you. But don't fall to the lie and reverse that equation because it doesn't work that way. God used me, therefore I am holy. God can use you and does use you, but that does not mean that you're right with Him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1-3, through 3, when you have time, read that passage of Scripture where Paul makes it very clear to the Corinthian believers who are struggling with a false understanding of the spiritual maturity that indeed a person can be greatly blessed of God and be very carnal and woefully lacking in the motivation of love. Thirdly, the most dangerous circumstance for a leader to face is prosperity. 2 Samuel 10 ends with David at the pinnacle of his life and career Prosperity removes necessity from our lives, the sense of dependency from our lives. Great kingdoms and great ministries and great Christian leaders aren't challenged by failure and by hardship and trial because that forges them, that draws them to God. Great ministries and great leaders fall because of prosperity. 
as did David. As we go into 2 Samuel chapter 11, David is slothful in his responsibilities and his obedience because of the great prosperity that God had given him. In Hosea chapter 13, verse 6, God says of Israel, When I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud. When they became proud, they forgot me. Prosperity is one of the most dangerous things for you to experience as an individual and for us to experience as a colleague. D. Fourthly, a leader's fall brings down God's reputation with him. 2 Samuel 12, 14, you ha- God says to David, You have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. And then lastly, David's life is a word of learning about God. And let me just say this. God, we learn that God hates sin. God, however, does, does forgive sin. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, after Jonathan confronts David in his sin, God makes it very clear to David in saying that I have, David said, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. The whole story of David's life, even his fall, tells us much about God's hatred for sin. But it also leaves us with a clear understanding that God does forgive sin when we are contrite and broken in our spirit over our wickedness. But not only does God forgive sin, this is an important reality that we learn about God in David's life. God does forgive sin when we are repentant. But God doesn't necessarily remove the consequences from sin. There are times that a loving God forgives us when we're repentant and He decides in His love to remove the consequences from us, doesn't He? There are other times that God does still love us, but in His love chooses not only to forgive us, but to continue to apply consequences of our sin to our lives. And that happened with King David. David robbed Uriah. Absalom robbed David. David took Uriah's life, wife, or took Uriah's life. God took David's son's life. David defiled the purity of Uriah's marriage. David's own children defiled his own family. David abused Uriah's devotion. David's children abused David's kindness. David used the deceit, deceit to get what he wanted. Deceit was used on David by his friends and children. At times, God's love will remove consequences. Other times, God's love will cause him to make us feel the consequences. And lastly, in 2 Samuel chapter 23, at the end of David's life, the last thing that we learn about God is that God restores. And in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 2 through 5, we read David saying, The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, When one rules over men in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of the morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings the grass from the earth. Is not my house right with God? Has not he made with me an everlasting covenant? arranged and secured at every part, will he not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire? God then closes the story on David's life after he brings him to full restoration. God does hate sin. He forgives us when we do sin and we're repentant and contrite. At times God removes consequences from sin. At times he does not. So whatever God chooses to do with the consequences, God can fully restore us no matter what we've done in in our relationship with Him. Let's pray together. Father, we are addressing a very, very sober and serious subject this morning. Lord, it is our desire that at the end of our lives that we will be able to, in some small measure... 
speak of our own relationship with you as David spoke of his in 2 Samuel chapter 23. The God that we have learned what it means to live with you in righteousness and holiness. And that we have learned what it is like to have sin in our lives and to have you confront it. To judge us, to cause it. To met out consequences. But yet to forgive us when we repent and to restore us in our relationship with you. God, help us to be students of the Old Testament to see how it is that we all should respond to the circumstances that we're hearing around us. And God, those of us that are confident in our flesh this morning, it is my desire that this message will shatter that confidence and that we will take heed lest we fall. And those of us that are weak and fearful and confused because of the fall of mighty men above us, we will be strengthened and encouraged as we reflect upon the power of your presence in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.